We have a, uh, an exciting text this morning. Uh, turn to Jeremiah 31. It's page 660 if you're using the supplied Bibles there in the chair in front of you. Uh, and I will make mention as you're turning there, there's been a, a couple questions around the school supplies. So in the hallway, uh, the school supplies uh, box is there collecting donations. That is not for the start of the school year. Uh, that is something that we will present to, to, to the area schools after the new year, sort of when supplies are running low, but school supplies are on sale now. So we, we thought we'd start collecting now, but that's, that's what that will go towards, uh, in case you were wondering. We're in Jeremiah 31, and uh, in, in Tim reading Hebrews 8, uh, really almost read verbatim what we're going to cover in our text this morning in Jeremiah as uh, the author of Hebrews quotes this portion of Scripture and ties it in and helps us to understand how it fits into the whole of Scripture. Uh, Jeremiah 31, let me read for us verses 31 to 34. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. May the Lord bless the reading of his word as we go to him in prayer once again. Lord, have mercy on us. You don't desire uh, simply outward service from us, the keeping of, of the law, the keeping of the religious expectations that we set up. You desire a broken, a contrite and repentant heart. I pray that that is the heart of each one here this morning, that you would, Holy Spirit, be breaking up the hardened ground of our hearts. That perhaps, Lord, our heart is a heart of stone, and I pray that you would give us a heart of flesh this morning to hear your word, to receive it, to obey it. Lord, ultimately, we are, are flawed, messed up people. We don't have it all together. And we are in need of a Savior. We are in need of Jesus Christ. Lord, allow this text to point us to him this morning. And when you use your word, as we look at this prophecy this morning, we love you. We look forward to what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we'd, we discussed, uh, as Pastor Adam uh, got into uh, 
David, the second king of Israel, and God making this covenant with him that through his offspring, his throne would be established forever as king of his people. And on the screen behind me here, you'll see sort of a a basic timeline uh, of events. You have Saul as your first king, David, the second king of Israel, his son Solomon uh, takes over, uh, each reigning for about 40 years. And because of Solomon's sin, after he dies, the kingdom of Israel divides. It divides to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And throughout, until they're both overrun, uh, they they continue to be a divided nation. Israel being uh, overtaken by the Assyrians uh, and Judah eventually being overtaken by the Babylonians going into the Babylonian captivities. And so to to sort of uh, bring some context to this whole timeline, you see some names on there in the post-exile time. Uh, with Ezra and Nehemiah, which in our, in our Bibles are more towards, the, I would say, the front of the Old Testament. But then you have all these prophets. And the, so the prophets to Israel, Elijah and Elisha and Amos and Jonah, Hosea, the prophets of Judah, Obadiah, Joel, Isaiah, our, our prophet of our text this morning, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, all uh, prophets to the kingdom and the nation of Judah. God using these prophets and working through these prophets um, uh, to to speak uh, sometimes judgment, to speak sometimes prophecy of blessing. But but there's your basic, uh, a very simplified timeline of Israel's history until uh, really the, the pinnacle of that, the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. and the Babylonians uh, uh, taking most of the people in captivity, but leaving some as remnants there in Jerusalem until Nehemiah and Ezra would come on the scene. So really, as we come to Jeremiah 31, there's not a ton of optimism floating around. Our text portion is, is probably uh, somewhere in that 606 mark that you see there. Um, and really, it was almost a slow exile as Babylon uh, continued to encroach, and really Judah was under this, the, the control and suppression of Babylon until they sought to revolt and, and made alliances with Egypt, and Babylon said, enough is enough, and they come in and they just wipe out uh, Judah, destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And so we're in that very beginning portion there, around 606, where, where Babylon is, is starting to encroach in Judah, and you're starting to feel the crumblings of this kingdom. Judah is falling apart. So the optimism is, is fleeting. Jeremiah himself, some of you know this, he's known as the weeping prophet. He wrote the book of Lamentations, the book of Laments. Uh, very sorrowful time in his ministry. He's a prophet who is watching his people and his nation literally crumble before him. He's issuing warnings and judgment from God, but the people continue to not listen, not heed the words of the Lord. And soon Babylon would completely overthrow Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. And there really wasn't this bright outlook for the future. Like, hey, things, look, things are looking good for us as a nation. That's, that's not what we have in the book of Jeremiah. 
Yet, in all of this, what we find in Jeremiah is a man that remained faithful and unwavering to God's promises. He's a man that, though things looked bleak, and maybe he didn't quite understand how everything would work out, he still was faithful to God in proclaiming what God would tell him to proclaim. He was still believing in these promises of God. And I think we could even say that Jeremiah was living our theme for this series. You know our theme God has proven himself true. You finish it. Therefore, we can trust him in everything. Almost. We'll work on that. We, we do these with our kids' uh, catechism questions throughout the week, and it's, we, we practice over and over repetition. But God has proven himself true. Therefore, we can trust him in everything. I think Jeremiah was very much uh, in that mindset even as things were looking bleak. And so for 29 chapters uh, from Jeremiah 1 through chapter 29, most of Jeremiah's prophecies really, I think, were difficult for him because they're not good news. Judgment is coming. Uh, You need to repent, Israel, Judah. You need to turn from your ways and turn back to God. But then he gets to chapter 30, and really from chapter 30 to chapter 33, it's this, this book of comfort, and he's able to give comfort. He's able to give hope. God has given, some, given him some good news to proclaim. And from chapter 30 to 33, and again, we're in chapter 31, but this is a response of God that is filled with love. It's filled with patience. In the midst of Judah's failure and their sin over and over, it's news that ought to cause celebration, not fear. It was a gospel message that was so desperately needed for a people on the brink of destruction. And it's a gospel message needed for us today. This morning, we want to look at the promise of a new covenant. A promise of a new covenant. Now, when I first came here, Pastor Adam gave me a book. It was about this thick. I could exaggerate. It was about this thick. Uh, and uh, part of that book is, is, a, is a handling of the new covenant. And that new covenant portion is almost 300 pages. Well, I don't have 300 pages of time to speak to you. Uh, so we're going to condense down and, and really just look at our immediate text for the most part and walk our way through what God is actually promising to his people in the words of Jeremiah the prophet, and we'll tie in a little bit of Ezekiel, and then we'll ultimately end in the book of Hebrews. But that's the way we're going to approach it this morning. I read the text already, and in verse 31, as we get into this text, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Behold, like, so, so you're, you're reading along, the people are hearing these prophecies, and Jeremiah says, stop, take a look, take notice here. I want you to catch this. I'm about to say something that you need to hear. The days are coming. Jeremiah is, is not living in the present, but he's looking towards a future time at this point. This is a prophecy 
A time in the future of what God is going to do. And it is God's doing in that phrase, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This is not Jeremiah's uh, idea. This is not him just trying to, you know, give a shot to the people to hang in there. You know, something better is coming, which oftentimes many of the false prophets did. This is God's word. It's the declaration of the Lord. And so Jeremiah is confident in what he's saying because he has a long line of history with God dealing with his people. He has a long history to look back on of God being faithful to his people. And so he's confident here. This is God's declaration. Listen up. And there's really, we could say it like this in our our, uh, vernacular, there's no reason not to trust God in this. Okay? He is speaking. Listen up. Think about all that he has already done in our midst, and there will come a day that this will be true. But really, how hard is it to believe the declarations of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the promises of the Lord, when we're going through the struggles of life? I think it's pretty hard. It's hard for me to, to believe the word of the Lord. Do you ever have that moment where you say, why can't I just trust him? Why can't I just believe this? And all of the circumstances of life are surrounding us and, and beating us down. It's hard to trust the word of the Lord. But the Christian life is a life of faith. Right? It's a walk of faith. It's a daily looking to, to God's word, looking to the declarations that he has, he has promised to us, and by faith saying, I know this will come to pass, and I am going to walk by faith. And so no matter what the current outlook of our life appears to be, no matter what we think is coming down the road, or perhaps the news we even expect this week, there is hope in the promises of God. He's not silent. He wasn't silent in the days of Jeremiah. He's not silent today. In fact, he's declaring to us all the time. You say, well, where is that happening? It's happening right here in his word. He's declaring to us all the time through this book and through the work of the Holy Spirit in this book. So what is this promise that Jeremiah is anticipating Well, let's read the next part of the verse. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant. So when I will cut a new covenant, I'm going to make a a covenant that's different than what I have done before. And, And again, this is God at work. God is the one saying this. I am going to do this. He's the one that is planning this out. It's his idea, it's his perfect will being carried out, and God's plan, as we've been looking at all summer, is continuing to unfold. It's the same plan that was promised in Genesis 3.15 to Adam and Eve, that the, 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 the serpent's head will be crushed by the foot of the offspring of Eve. It's the same promise that continued through Noah. It's the same promise that singled out Abraham and his descendants, that all people, all nations of the earth will be blessed through them. It's the same promise that brought Israel out of Egyptian slavery and, and brought them the law at, the, at Mount Sinai. 
It's the same promise that solidified David's offspring as being uh, the, the, the eternal king, that one of his sons would be the eternal king of God's people. So it's building on the promises of old, but it's something new. This is a new agreement. This is a new covenant. And so I say all that to say at no point are we to think that God had a plan in place and he started working and he started doing things like this and then it wasn't working out so he said, you know what, I'm going to scrap all of this and I'm going to start over. That's not, that's not the idea here in the new covenant. These promises and covenants all fit together. And as we work, work through, we'll, we'll see comparisons and contrast. But for now, let's just think about it's new. It's new in that the promises, this, this covenant promise provides uh, new and better things. It's a new and better way, and it's, it will have a new and better sacrifice. So the promise, I will make, I will cut a new covenant. And who is this with? With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Remember our timeline that we had up there. What happened? The nations were, the nation was divided. Israel, Judah. And now Jeremiah is like, it's like he's saying, okay, I'm bringing this all back. That even though the earthly kingdom of Israel is divided, I am still dealing with one people. I am still dealing with one people of God. And God is dealing with his chosen people He is still set on making his promises good to this group of people. And really, when we think about it, no matter what kind of mess we make out of things, or that Israel made a mess of all things in in their life and their kingdom, God will see his plans come to completion. Man's mess doesn't affect God's plans. This is the promise. Now, what does this, what does this covenant look like? How, how would we contrast this covenant with the previous one? Well, he, he continues in verse 32. This is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. So the new covenant will be distinct from the former covenant that God made with Israel. There's a, there's a, there is a distinction here. It's not just a remaking of uh, really, the Mosaic Covenant, which is what he's going to reveal in the next phrase. What, it's not like this covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. God had made a covenant with Israel, which is recorded in Exodus 19 through Exodus 24. It's recorded in Deuteronomy 5 and following, which is known as the Mosaic Covenant. And in that covenant... Remember, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He comes down, and he has two tablets in his hand. The law. It's where we get our Ten Commandments from. And it's this Mosaic covenant and the law that is being contrasted here with the new covenant. This is going to be different than what I gave in Exodus 24 and following. In fact, uh, we, we want to turn to Exodus 24 just for a moment. It's on page 65, so keep your finger in Jeremiah, but it's worth going to Exodus 24, because what does Jeremiah tell us? I'm, I'm talking about this covenant, 
And then he says, this covenant that my people broke. What is he talking about? I think it's helpful to go to the text of Exodus 24, page 65. And let's just read verses 3 through verses, verse number 8. It says, Moses came. So Moses comes down from the mount. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, and this is a significant part here, and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So these represent the 12 tribes of the people. Verse 5, and he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. Uh, Sorry, I lost my place there for a moment. And half of the blood, important part, he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, "All all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. The people are agreeing to this covenant. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. A few weeks ago, Terry mentioned in looking at an aspect of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 15, the covenants typically involved the killing of an animal. And in that, in that covenant with Abraham, the animal was cut in two and, and uh, God walked through, in, in a sense, through that and uh, in, in saying, I will be the keeper of this Abrahamic covenant, this covenant that I'm making with Abraham And as was mentioned a few weeks ago, the the ratification of that covenant was the killing of that animal. And and oftentimes, that blood of that animal would be sprinkled on both parties when covenants were made. So both parties, the blood was sprinkled on, and sometimes the parties would then cook and eat that animal. And again, the point being, if I break this covenant... May it be done to me like was done to this animal in killing it. That's exactly what we read in Exodus 24. The oxen were killed. Some of the blood is sprinkled on the altar. That is God's, the presence of God. God is saying, I agree to this covenant. The people hear the covenant. We agree too. The blood is sprinkled on the people. If someone should break this covenant, the result is death. Going back to Jeremiah, he says exactly this, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. So the indictment on the people is, listen, you have broken my covenant. And if you were to read all the history of Israel from Exodus 24 and following, and the times that they turned to false idols and false worship, 
until this time of Jeremiah, they would be guilty as charged. But on the, on the flip end, God says this, you were guilty of breaking the covenant, but I was a husband to you. So the implication, the picture here is that Israel was an adulterous wife. They were, they, they were cheating on God. And we think about that, that the marriage covenant, right? It's, a, it's an agreement between a man and a woman that as long as we both live, we will be faithful to each other. This is the imagery all throughout Scripture that God is, brings into his people. This is the whole picture of marriage. God is a husband in this instance. Israel is the bride. And now God knows what it's like to be cheated on. And some of us in this room, whether it's man or woman, know that feeling all too well. You, you know that hurt. You know that pain. That distrust. That feeling, I don't know that I will ever be able to get past this or I will ever be able to forgive them again. If I can encourage you this morning in, in, in thinking through that, God has felt that pain. God knows what it's like. And this all-powerful God, desiring for his creation to know him, put himself in a relational position, and he was cheated on. His people were not faithful to him. They were adulterers. But God was the faithful husband. And when God uses the word husband, it might be different than what some of us uh, conjures up in our mind or what we've experienced. Because unfortunately, sin has corrupted the plan of God in the husband-wife relationship. Sometimes a husband is abusive whether that's verbally or physically or sexually, sometimes they're controlling. They're angry. They lash out. They're distant and unloving. And men, if, if this is what your husbanding looks like, it needs to stop. It is sin. And it's not what God called us, has called us to be as husbands. Husbands are to love their wives more than themselves. They are to provide and protect, to be faithful to, to care for, to nurture, to serve their wives. So when God says here in Jeremiah 31, 32, though I was their husband, he's saying that he is and he was everything a husband ought to be for his bride of Israel. There was nothing done on his part that caused them to sleep around with false gods. God has been and always will be faithful to his people. And it was Israel that was unfaithful and quickly unfaithful. If you remember the story, I mean, Moses doesn't even get down from the mount and they have a golden calf that they're worshiping. I mean, they're, they're quickly unfaithful. But there was no pointing the finger at God. Well, he did, so I did. That, that's not the scene here. And in the agreeing of the Mosaic Covenant there in Exodus 24, they were deserving of death. 
They were deserving for their blood to be spilled like the, the blood of the oxen that was killed. And brothers and sisters, lest we become proud and say, well, yeah, look, what it, look how bad Israel was. This is us. This is who we are. We are the unfaithful prostitute who turns to idols. We are the ones that aren't faithful to God. And like Israel, we may not even realize the idols that have crept into our lives. Idols of money, success, pleasure, status. I wrestle with idols all the time. Last couple weeks. I know it's silly, and your mind might not work like this. You may struggle with other things. But when we moved here, someone gave, someone gave us an, uh, a phone for, uh, for either one of us. It ended up being Bows uh, when we switched to Verizon. Okay, fine. But it was having issues, and the, the, the earpiece didn't work very well. So I, I finally said, look, I will, get, well, I will get you a new phone. Now, by new, I meant someone else had previously used it, but it'll be new to you. And so what did I start doing? I'm looking on eBay and Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace, and I'm looking on these sites, and man, you have to drive a distance for some of these places out here, a little bit different than what I was used to, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way, like maybe this one will work out, or maybe that one, and I, I want a good deal because I'm, I, you know, this is my idol. I get a good deal. And I'm trying to rearrange all of these things in my life and the consuming mind that happens when, when, I, when I start to approach things like this because I want, you know, I want to feel satisfied that I, you know, that I didn't overspend and I even underspent. And I want Val to say, wow, he really loves me. Look how much he's doing for me. And then I can even tell other people, look at this deal that I found so that they would be then impressed with me in some way, even though the reality is they're not going to be impressed. But in my mind, I've turned the purchase of a cell phone into an idol. Something that I found that I was worshiping and devoting to more than the worship of God. This is what we call sin. And none of us are immune to it. That might be a silly thing. But what's your idol this morning? Because none of us can say, well, that's not me. We are all guilty as charged. God is not to blame. We are the unfaithful ones who deserve death. And in breaking the covenant... Israel is guilty and deserving of judgment. And we would expect Jeremiah 31 to read something along the lines of, here is what you get because of breaking the covenant, because of your sin. And yet that is not, not what God gives. Let's end in verses 33 and 34 here. So he says, look, I'm going to make a new covenant. It's going to be different because you have broken my, uh, my covenant from before. And verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put 
my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. See, under the Mosaic law, God wrote his law on tablets of stone. Twice, in fact, because of man's anger. The law was given externally. But here, God says, look, this is where it's going to be different. This is where it's going to be new. I am going to give you a law internally. I'm going to place it inside of you. It's not just going to be words that you read, but, but it's going to be indwelling you. There's going to be this inward desire to conform to God's law, not, re- not merely an external conforming to the law. And, and Ezekiel 36 and 37 is helpful here. We're not going to turn there. As Ezekiel prophesies of a time when God will give his people a new heart and he will put a new spirit within them causing them to walk in obedience to his law. So Ezekiel and Jeremiah are prophesying of the same covenant promise. God's people would know his law and they would desire to do it. Big difference from before. And at times, we may question or doubt our standing with God. I don't know if I'm, I don't really know if I'm a believer. I don't know if, if I, I, I think I'm, I made a profession at one time, but I'm not sure because of the way I'm living or what's happening in my life. I'm just not sure what I believe. We have those moments of doubt and, and, and they're not always a bad thing. Sometimes they're a, they're a good thing. But one of the indications of regeneration of a new birth will be a Will, will be a desire to follow God and to follow his word. An inner desire that I, 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 I want to do this and, and I desire to do this. An inner desire to obey God will be true of all new covenant members. And, and what's amazing as you read this and we really... We don't have time to really meditate on it, but it's not just the desire to do it. It's the ability to do it. In Christ, God makes it possible for all new covenant members to be faithful to him, something that the old covenant members wasn't universally true with all of Israel. But here he says, all people, I will put, all, I will put my law within them all of my people. I will write it on their hearts. They won't just have the desire, but they have the ability to obey from the heart, to keep his law. And this is all a work of God. Notice the next phrase. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. The goal is the same as the previous covenants. This is relationship language. Today, as you sit here, your relationship with God looks like one of intimacy, that husband-wife relationship, or it looks like one of hostility, simply ignoring God. There's no in-between And I don't know your heart, and no one else does, even your spouse. 
But your relationship with the Lord looks like one of intimacy or one of hostility. But what we see in this phrase, once again, is that God is a relational God who is bringing his people into relationship with him. His plan isn't to save people so they can enjoy this golden home in heaven. They can just kind of do their own thing and enjoy you know, the, the pearls and the jewels and, and all these things we, 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 we tend to be drawn towards. His plan is to save people so that they can experience life by knowing him and enjoying him forever. That's God's plan in all of this, that you would know him. And verse 34 makes this even more clear, I think. Because he says, okay, verse 33, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. It used to be that to know God, people were pointed to the law. They were pointed to the ceremonies and the sacrifices and, and, and the priest, the mediator. They had to go through the priest so that the sacrifice could be made. What do we read here? This is no longer going to be the case. We're not pointing to these things anymore. God wants to be known, and knowledge of him will come through experiencing him through an inward working relationship. Through his new spirit, through a new heart. And this is what Jeremiah means when he says, look, no one, no one will teach. It's not that we don't need teaching within the body and theology. That's not, that's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is all who are God's people will know who God is in relationship with him through this Holy Spirit within us, through the, the new heart of regeneration that brings us into a relationship with God. That's what Jeremiah is referring to. So no longer, people will no longer relate to God through the ceremonies and the sacrifices and the law. People will relate to God through a personal relationship with him. And this is true across the board for all of God's people, his new covenant members. He even brings a qualifier here in the very next phrase, from the least of them to the greatest. God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't play rich against poor, black against white, male against female. This new covenant will put all of his people on the same level with all having access to God because of the internal working in their lives. And this is all possible because of the end of verse 34. Maybe, maybe the key of even this, this whole section, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God's perfect holiness and man's sin have never been compatible. It's like oil and water. They're going to separate. Sin always separates. This morning, can I ask what sin is separating you from God? What, what sin are you struggling with in your life? And, and whatever your relationship with the Lord is, whether you say, I'm, I'm a believer in Christ 
or I don't know if I'm, I don't know about these things, or I'm hearing them for the first time, and I'm still sorting through. Wherever you're at in your walk with the Lord, in your relationship with Him, the answer to the, the question, what sin am I struggling with, what, what sins are, 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 am I wrestling with, should never be, I don't have sin. That should never be our response. But as a church, a church, I think as an American church, perhaps some within our own church, we tend to wear the mask. We tend to act as if everything is, is good, that we don't have any problems, that, that we're, you know, Christ saved us from all our sin, and now we just walk in victory all the time. We don't really have any struggles. But the church, the church is a people who's messed up. And they know that they're messed up and they're in desperate need. That, that ought to be what the church is. The church is not simply good people who have cleaned themselves up. And so I feel, I feel comfortable saying, look, if you're not regularly dealing with sin and being convicted of sin and, and confessing sin and fighting it and repenting, then it's possible you're deceiving yourself, even in your own relationship with the Lord. 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And I say all that to say forgiveness will never come to those who hide their sin. This, this promise, I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more, will never come if we hide our sin, if we say we have no sin. And without forgiveness, there is no relationship with God. It's impossible. And the comfort of this promise is that no matter what I've done, no matter what I do, no matter what you've done or will do, forgiveness is available. Forgiveness is available to you. The law can never take away sin. The old covenant can never take away sin. But in the new covenant, it is based on the forgiveness of sin. It's all made possible to be in relationship with him because of the forgiveness of sin that we receive in Christ. God will not hold the sin against you. Have you caught the sense of this covenant promise this morning? I, I know it's, it's brief in many ways, but everything leading up to this point in, in Israel's history and Jeremiah's prophecy is screaming, give the people what they deserve. Let them die in their sin for the re rebellion and disobedience to the covenant promise that they made. Instead, God pours out love. Instead, God responds saying, look, I, I know that you broke the covenant. But I'm going to step in and I'm going to make a new covenant. And as a faithful husband, he opens his arms of forgiveness and he makes it possible for his people to live in perfect relationship with him. And, and while we wait for the completion of this new covenant, we can be certain that this covenant is well underway. And those days that Jeremiah longed for ha have come to pass in an inaugural sense in the, the beginning. So fast forward 600 years from where Jeremiah is prophesying at this point, 
and God himself will be born into the world. And Jesus will step into this world and he will fulfill the law completely. Not do away with the law, but he will fulfill it and be obedient to the law. Something that we failed to do, but Israel failed to do. And because of his obedience, death had no claim on him. But what did he do? He willingly laid his life down, sacrificed himself as the new covenant sacrifice. The shedding of his blood. And then he rose again to claim victory. And so it's Jesus' shed blood that is sprinkled on the heavenly altar. And, and at salvation, 1 Peter 1, 2, Hebrews 10, 22, alludes to it's that blood is sprinkled on our hearts. And this covenant, this new covenant is made in a very personal and real way. New covenant language is all throughout the New Testament. But I want to end our time in Hebrews 10. So if we could just turn there real briefly, and we'll, we'll conclude. Hebrews 10, page 1007. Again, chapter 8 was already read for us by Tim, which tied these two things together and talked about the, the old covenant was a shadow, it was a picture of what Christ would come to do. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 18, the author of Hebrews writes, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. The work is complete. Waiting from, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Beginning back in Exodus 24, all the way up to Jesus' death, the sacrifices by the priest on behalf of the people were a reminder of the old covenant. And that blood would be sprinkled each time. And it was a reaffirming of that old covenant. But all these things were shadows. They were pictures of a greater covenant that was to come. When Jesus died, he became the final eternal sacrifice for sin. His blood was shed, sprinkled on the heavenly altar and, and, and on our hearts, bringing us into new covenant relationship with him. And it's in this moment of regeneration that the Holy Spirit, this new spirit that Ezekiel speaks of, indwells us. And God's spirit lives within us and his law is carved out in our hearts, written on our hearts. So Christians, you have, begin, you have been given the power and the ability to say no to sin and to say yes to following God. That power is yours. You have a mediator in Jesus that knows what it's like to live in the world with all of its struggles and all of its temptations, yet he never sins and he's given you access to the Father. He is our mediator. He is our priest. 
And he is the sacrifice who sacrificed himself on the cross so that full forgiveness of sin could be offered. And there would never need to be another sacrifice. You know, if you are in Christ this morning, there is no need to run back to the law. That, that's sometimes our default. Earn God's favor. Keep these things. Do this. Do that. But you never need to run back to the law to prove yourself through obedience. Like Israel, you will fail again and again. But praise God, he implemented a new and better covenant founded on the finished work of Christ. You know, Jesus gave us a very visible picture of this in the new, uh, of the new covenant. As we prepare ourselves to take part in the Lord's Supper in the communion time, it's with all of that background that we come to this moment, this table. Jesus' sacrifice is the sacrifice of the new covenant. This is what we remember when we partake of the body and the blood symbolically and the bread and the juice. And the only way that God can ever be your God and you can ever be God's people is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's why Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we're not to do this in an unworthy manner without proper discernment. Though symbolic, the eating of the bread and the juice is, in a sense, you partaking of this covenant. You saying, yes, I, I believe this is true of me. I'm a follower of Christ and his spirit is within me. And like the covenants of old where the blood of the sacrifice will be sprinkled on both parties and the sacrifice would be eaten, th this is a meal. This time is, we, we, again, the Lord's Supper. It's, it's a meal time. And so we eat of the bread and we drink the juice. We are testifying that we are trusting in Jesus' sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. And in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29, Paul writes this, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, the Lord's body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. What is he saying? To take part in this new covenant meal, to take part in this, this communion time without true belief and a, without a right understanding of the sacrifice of Jesus and what it means for you, then, then like the slain son of God, you too will be struck down in judgment. Maybe not physical in the immediate, but spiritually and after this life, we are judged in our sin to hell. And so as we prepare our hearts and worship around this meal, it's not about our worthiness. It's about Jesus's worthiness. And so let's take some time to examine ourselves to see, do I believe this gospel? Do I believe this good news of Christ? And then take part accordingly. Mm -hmm.